If you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up. We're going to find ourselves beginning uh, the night in Psalm uh, 65 as we continue working our, our journey through the Psalms. Um, as we come to Psalm 65, and as often is the case, as we work our way through them, we, we find a Psalm of David. Uh, we work our way through uh, primarily the beginning of the first two books of Psalms. Psalms divided into five books. We find ourselves in the second book currently. <coughs> Psalms of David will lead us uh, down to around uh, 70 Psalms. Um, and so we're working our way through those right now. And as we come, we have a psalm of David, a psalm of praise. And as he opens up in Psalm 65, it's, it's praising God for his presence. Praising God for his presence. Being in that place where, just like we were singing, Christ is enough for me. That, that having him in our presence. One of the things that set the nation of Israel apart early on in their history and during David's rule was this idea, this concept. What happened or what he did as he works his way through is he, he establishes early on through Moses the centrality of God. So I want you to think about the wilderness experience, okay? The, <coughs> the children of Israel left Exodus. They're in the wilderness. They have to de- depend on God for everything, right? They're in the middle of the desert. So I've got to depend on God for water, Right? That there's no water in the desert, otherwise it wouldn't be the desert. Uh, i got to depend on God for sustenance, for my food, every day. And so the children of Israel, in that wilderness journey on the way to Mount Sinai, and ultimately, the 40 years after their failure, uh, we, we find them with the presence of God wherever they go. How do they know the presence of God was with them? They had the Kabod and the Shekinah. They had the, the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. What did that represent? Presence of God, right? How did the children of Israel know when to move? The presence of God moved. They see the cloud move, they move. They see the pillar move, they move. The pillar stops, they set up camp. And so during that period of time, it's, it's like a training period, really, where God's teaching the children of Israel the importance of His presence. And what happens after Mount Sinai, they, they come down the mountain, not only with the law, but with the, the blueprints for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes a central uh, place for the presence of God, right in the midst of the children of Israel, <coughs> in the middle of their camp, the tabernacle, where over the tabernacle, the pillar or the cloud would, would be in the sky. The children of Israel knew, like, go to the tabernacle, there's a presence of God right there, they they have opportunity to worship. They have opportunity uh, to experience the, the forgiveness of God, right? The whole point of the tabernacle was to cover the sins of the people. Remember when they fell at the giving of the Ten Commandments. So what they learn as they go through that, now they learn to complain and they learn to be bitter, but that comes natural, right? We, we don't need to learn those things. That, that's part of our nature, Part of our, our fallen nature, part of our sin nature. So they complain, they're bitter, they struggle. But what they learned was, if I'm in God's presence, I got what I need. My sustenance, I'll have what I need. I'll have the, 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 the things that I lack are going to be found in Him. <clears throat> really, David describes this in one of his earlier Psalms that we went through, 
when he talked about the, the bones that had been broken, that, that he would rejoice, that God would teach him in Psalm 51 to rejoice in the bones that he had broken. And the picture is a picture of a, a lamb that won't stay with the shepherd. Where is the lamb the safest? With the shepherd, right? If the lamb goes away from the shepherd, what happens? Bad things happen, right? Wolf, uh, whatever. Well, if he's got a lamb that continues to, <clears throat> to go, to wander, to go in a variety of places, what God, or what, what happens, God does this too, but what the shepherd would do is break its legs. Now, when the lamb's legs were broken, the shepherd would break them, bind the legs up, and put the lamb on his shoulders. What the lamb learned during that period of time while his legs were, were healing was that as long as I'm with the shepherd, I have everything I need. I have my sustenance. I have the water that I need. I have the care that I need. It's all found in this place. And then when the legs healed, you had a lamb that didn't wander anymore, but stayed close to the shepherd. David said that's the same thing God had done in his life. Uh, after his sin with Bathsheba. And <clears throat> if we look at the book of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 2, um, as Hosea, if you remember, Hosea is a prophet God called to marry a sexually immoral woman. And so, <clears throat> wow, one day this cold's going to leave. Anybody else got it? Would you keep it and stop spreading it around? I got some up here. Um, anyways, what Hosea does is through the naming of his children, he prophesies about the nation of Israel. And as he, he discusses their sin, here's your sin. Then he discusses the punishment. Here's what's going to happen because of your sin. And then he talks about a reversal or redemption that's going to come. And one of the redemptions that Hosea names is he says, I'm going to take the valley of Achor and make it a door of hope. Now, the valley of Achor means the valley of trouble. So the picture is this picture of trouble. What was trouble for the lamb? He got his legs broke. But through the breaking of its legs and the healing of its legs and the things that it learned in that process, it opened the door of hope where it could be safe with the shepherd. And so the, the picture throughout Scripture, we see the same, the, the valley of Achor, the trouble, and the ability to praise God for his presence, that he's here, that he cares. That John 3.16 tells, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son, his one and only unique son. He gave his son for the world, so that the world could be reconciled to him. God's presence. Look, he says, praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, the city of God, O Zion. <clears throat> and to you, the vow shall be performed, the promise, the things that are given, that, that are, are, are uh, promised to God. O oh, you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. So he's talking to God. The praise belongs to you. And he says, one day, all flesh is going to come to you. All flesh, the Bible tells, right? Every knee will bow. Every means how many? Okay, so all flesh is going to come. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To you all flesh will come. All flesh. And then he says in verse 8, here's his struggle. I want to praise you for your presence. I want to praise you for who you are. But iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. 
at one minute. You will heal the divide that occurs between men and God. The Bible very clearly teaches us that all men are separated from God, from birth. We are separated from God because of our sin. That's something that's passed down from father to son throughout the generations. Mankind in every part, every part of his being is stained by sin. And so he says, my iniquities, his iniquities prevail against him. He's struggling with sin. That's what iniquities means. It's my sin, my struggle. All our struggles aren't the same, right? Then the writer of Hebrews tell us that we're to cast aside every weight. A weight is anything that would hinder you from running. Cast aside every weight, and then he goes on, and the sin, definite article, which so easily ensnares you. The one that catches you. Every man doesn't have the same struggle, does he? Some men have struggles with alcohol. Some some men have struggles with with any variety, sexual immorality, uh, anger, uh, rage, whatever. There's lots of things men can struggle with. So he's telling us, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you need to cast aside the weight because we got a race to run. And you need to uh, cast aside that sin that so easily ensnares you, the one that's grabbing you. And so here, <clears throat> David is saying, look, praise is awaiting you, God. I want to praise you and I want to sing glory to your name, but my sin prevails against me. Sometimes our sin is winning, right? And then he says, and as for our transgressions, that word transgressions can be also uh, described as rebellion. Transgression is when we, on purpose, disobey something we know we shouldn't do. It's like if somebody draws a line in the sand and we step over that line. It's an act of rebellion. So he says, my, my sin prevails against me, and as for my rebellion, my struggle to do the things that you want me to do, God... You will provide atonement. It's future tense. Now these psalms would be sung during the feast days when they would be giving sacrifice to have at-one-ment, atonement, to be reconciled to God. But what did that sacrifice picture? See, every Jew coming up knew that it wasn't the blood of lambs and goats that paid for our sin. It was an illustration it was a picture of a sacrifice that would last, right? Because the day after I give my offering, what happened? I sinned again. So there's a perpetual sacrifice going on. So I'm not really reconciled to God in that. I have a temporary fix. I'm charging to a credit card my sin. But there would be a sacrifice spoken of by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, that would pave the way. Daniel the prophet also talked about it in Daniel chapter 9. So this idea that there would be atonement, the future would provide for atonement. They would have what was necessary to overcome their sin and rebellion. Then look at verse 4, it's kind of interesting. It says this, Blessed is the man you choose. Blessed is a man you choose. Blessed is a man you chose. The man that you call. The man that you direct. Look, we may not like a lot of things in the Bible, but you're going to have a hard time getting away from the concept of election. Election means God chooses people. How do we come to salvation? God calls us, right? God God puts out the call. God pays the price. 
God does the work. We grab the line. God saves us. He chooses us. <laughs> Blessed is the man you chose and you cause to approach you. So the man that you draw to yourself. You see how, how he's talking. I'm praising you. You're going to make it one minute. How blessed is the man that you choose, that you, that you call to yourself, that he may dwell in your courts. That he may be with you. That's how we get there. God had to condescend to us. The distance between God and man is so vast, we can't reach him. Right? So God comes to us. Jesus comes to us. He, he pays the price. He bridges uh, the gap, if you will, between us. So we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and of your holy temple. Now, he's talking about not only the, the bless or the, or the, the praise for the presence of God, but now he's talking about the blessing of God's presence, the day when we'll be with him. We're going to be with him and uh, all the things, all the hassles, all the struggles, all the things that are wrong will be made right. It's in his presence. That's what the presence of God, when we come together and worship, that's what the presence of God is a promise or guarantee for. That one day that presence will be a perfect presence, not hampered or hindered by our own frailties or inabilities. <coughs> and on that day we shall be satisfied. We'll have everything we need in him. He provides it all. We'll have it all. And now he moves on to the praise of God's rule or sovereignty. He says, by awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us. So you're going to move. Why are we going to be satisfied? You're going to move in our life. Your providence, your sovereignty, your hand in my life <coughs> is going to do awesome things through you and through me. Oh God of our salvation, for you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth. And of the far off seas, who established the mountains by his power, being clothed with power. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult or turmoil of the people. So as he's talking about the power of God, right? He's, he's now he's moved from praising God for his presence and the blessing of God's presence to praising God for his sovereignty or his rule, his power. That he's in control. So he says, he, not only does he say, it's you who are the confidence of the ends of the earth. Who, who have the earth tilted on the axis the way you want it tilted. Who have, who keep it all together. Who um, establish the mountains. That's where their mountains are going to be, there and no further. This is how far the sea is going to come, there and no further. It's all the decision of God, what God has done clothed in his power. And then in verse 7, <coughs> he likens his ability to still the noise of the seas. Now he's talking about Yahweh, talking about Almighty God, stilling the noise of the seas. Does that remind you of another story? Of a day when Jesus sent his disciples across, the storm came. The second time he walks out, both times, what's he do? Peace be still, and what happens? He quiets the waves. He quiets the seas. Who's the only one who can do that? God Almighty. God Almighty is the only one who can do that. But he likens the noise of the sea and the noise of the waves to the noise of the people. So he's, he's able to quiet the noise of the people. 
the same way. You ever have turmoil in your soul? <coughs> you ever find yourself going through things in life where, where your life is like a storm, a sea, just churning? Well, it's God who is able to speak into your life, peace be still. It's God who's able. And if God's not doing it, it's because there are things that he's developing in you and I, our character, whatever, in the midst of the storm, just like he did the disciples. He didn't stop the storm right away, right? They had to go through a part of that storm. But that storm didn't come for their destruction, right? It came to teach them and develop them, to encourage them. In the same way, this is what this is what he's praising God for his sovereignty, for his control, for his ability to work with men, to quiet the noise of men. And then in verse 8, he has this word of promise. They also, who dwell in the farthest parts, are afraid of your signs. People know God exists. I don't care what they say. The foundation of truth for my life is the word of God. That means if the word of God says it, then it's true. Romans chapter 1 tells us what? That nobody needs to know God. They all know him. That his uh, power and attributes are clearly seen in the things that are made. The point that, that Paul's making in Romans is, there's not a lack of evidence for God. Everybody knows there's a God. The problem is a sin problem. So man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness so that um, he can continue in his sin what did the bible tell us in john chapter one it said jesus came right not to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved the scripture tells us that that light came to the darkness but men didn't come to the light why they liked the darkness their deeds were evil they suppressed the truth. Was there really any question in the, in the Messiahship, if there's such a word, of Jesus? When I, when I think about Leviticus chapter 13 and the, and the work that the priest was to do for the curing of a leper, and you think about how many times that happened over history. Not very many, by the way. The, the, two, the two or three times a leper is cleansed in the Bible are Gentiles or a very short... Uh, event that occurs prior to the establishing of uh, of what's going on in Leviticus. So now you have this rule in Leviticus. Here's what you're going to do when a leper's cleansed. Jesus comes on the scene. How many times were lepers cleansed? Over and over. Ten in one time. Ten in one day. Right? They went to the priest, and the priest had to look up Leviticus, get the scroll. What are we supposed to do? And the and the symbolism behind the ceremony. For the cleansing of a leper exactly depicts or illustrates the, the crucifixion of the cross and the death of the Son of God to atone for the sin of men. So we, we see, if Messiahship wasn't in question, what did men do? Suppress the truth. They said, no, 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 he's Beelzebub. Because every day the devil came and cast out demons, Right? I mean, that was pretty common. I can understand how they can make that mistake. You know, they, they had all these possessed people hanging around and, and, you know, they struggled. But every once in a while, the devil would show up and cast the demon out. No, that's ridiculous, right? It's, it's absurd. Well, how do, how do we get to absurdity? We suppress the truth. 
We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do we suppress the truth? We love our sin. Isn't that our world today? Is there a better way to describe our world? We love our sin, and so we suppress the truth. He says, everyone all around the entire earth, to the farthest parts, are afraid of your signs. The idea is they all know you. They all know you. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening. Basically what he's saying is, when morning dawns and evening fades, you do it all. You make the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the course of the events of this world. You, oh God, are in control of it all, and man knows it. I, I kind of get blown away when I, <coughs> I think about things like, I have a organ in my body the size of my fist made out of meat that pumps something like 700,000 gallons of, of blood over uh, my lifetime and is powered by donuts. <laughs> and you need evidence for a God. I don't think so. You know. Men know. But they love their sin. They love the darkness rather than the light. Now he moves to the blessing. What is the blessing when God is sovereign? When God rules? When God is on the throne? When we see the kingdom? As, as David looks forward, okay, we, we see the presence of God. We see the, the evidence of him with us now. But we look forward to the truth of being in his presence forever. We see the blessing of God's sovereignty now. But we're going to look forward to what it's like to be in his presence when God is king. And it's not David. <clears throat> so he says this, you visit the earth and water it. Now the children of Israel from the time of David until the, the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity <clears throat> and the destruction of the nation continuously attributed the gift of water and their crops to Baal. If you, if you read through 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, over and over and over and over, <coughs> you're going to see that battle with the Baals. The Baals were the Canaanite god that they believed that supplied the rain. They live in the desert, they needed rain, everybody else worshipped Baal and they got rain, so that's what the children of Israel did. But David says, no, you visit the earth. It's you who brings the water. You water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. The river of God is, is full of water. You provide their grain. Who's they? You provide their grain. He's talking about the evil and the good. All owe the, their provision to God. God supplies for both. The rain falls on the evil and the good. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. <clears throat> you crown the year with your goodness. And your paths drip with abundance. The idea is that you're following God and you're on His path. On His will. The, the things that you need are right there. doesn't mean that it won't be uphill or downhill or there's not a struggle on the path. It just means the things that you need are available. The stuff that you need to walk the path is provided. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills 
rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. So they're, they're praising for his provision and, and enjoying the blessing of his rule when God rules. Uh, uh, just a small picture of, uh, of the king, what the kingdom is to be like. That, that, that the twisted things are made straight. And that God is able to establish his plans and his <laughs> goal for mankind. Now as we move on to Psalm 66, we come to again uh, uh, a psalm. that uh, This is a psalm that is all about come and see what God has done. And there's three groups that you'll see called in this. The world, come and see the nation of Israel, come and see... And then the writer himself, I will come. So here's how it goes. It begins with, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Now that phrase is a command. Not a suggestion. It's a command. Make a joyful shout to God. Honor God. Honor God. He's worthy of our praise. Over and over again, the scripture declares... That God is worthy. So the call to make the joyful shout. Sing out the honor of his name. Make <clears throat> make his praise glorious. So sing out the honor of his name. The Ahavahwe. The concept of the honor of his name. Uh, the name of God closely is related to uh, the ego I me or the I am of Exodus chapter 3. Uh, basically it means the becoming one. That he's what you need. He becomes what you need. Whatever that need is in our life. So he says, sing out the praise to the one who is the becoming one. Who is the very things that you lack in your life. Now a lot of times, we try to fill those things ourselves. Right? Okay, what I lack in life is money. What I lack in life is companionship. What I lack in life is children. What I lack in life doesn't matter. We, we, there's, there's any number of things that we put in that place that says... This is what's missing from my life. But it's God who is the becoming one. It's God who's in control. <coughs> and if you are lacking one of those things, perhaps it is God that is looking to be that for you. He wants to be that desire. Wherever that desire is. That desire is for earthly companionship. That desire is for family. That desire, whatever it is. God's saying, that, that's what I want. I want that desire. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that our entire being loves Him. That, that our desire is for Him. And so the challenge for you and for me is to recognize the honor, the, the majesty, the, the glory that belongs to Him. Because C.S. Lewis said, what you love, you'll praise. I used to be a Rams fan when I lived in California, and so did they. When they were terrible. Back in the days when San Francisco 49ers beat them in the playoffs every year. Back when Pat Hayden was quarterback, or Vince Ferragamo, <laughs> who probably some of you guys may remember. And so I'm such a fan of everything I got Rams this, Rams that. If we sat down with a group of guys and started talking football, 
I'm going to talk about the Rams. I'm going to say this is going to be the year. was a pretty hardcore fan. Um, at one point in my life, thought I might play for him. That didn't work out so good. But this was, I loved them, and so where, when, when the topic came up, I talked about them. I love my wife. When we gather together with people and we start talking about wives, I'm going to talk about my wife because I love my wife. I'll, I'll praise her. If we love God, we'll praise Him. We'll talk about Him. We'll express Him. We want to tell people about Him. We want to share Him. Giving Him honor for, <laughs> for who He is in my life is not hard. Because I love Him and I acknowledge it. Everything I have is due to Him. Every good thing I experienced, every, every difficult thing that I overcame is because of Him. He equipped it all. He, he, he walked me through it all. And so He is worthy of my praise. So they're, they're calling all the world. We're going to see it in a moment. Say to God, how awesome are your works? You ever think about just the miracles in creation? The miracles in the universe? All the stuff that people want to say happen randomly. But the problem is that if I have a if I have a worldview that holds to randomness, I have no explanation for induction. I have no explanation for uniformity. I have no explanation for morality. I have no explanation for logic. I have no explanation for the very things I use in my life every day. Why do I have a worldview that says there is no God? Because I suppress the truth because I love my sin. That's why. It's really pretty simple. I want to keep my sin. I want to live in my sin. I want to wallow in my sin. So I suppress those things. So it's not hard to see the amazing works of God all around us. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Again, we come to a a common theme as we work our way through the Psalms. (laughs) How many knees will bow? All. So no matter if they're an enemy or not, there will be a day every knee will bow. Nobody will be able to restrain themselves from that. Your enemies will submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you. That's a lot of the earth, right? All the earth will worship you. You see, this is a call. The first call. Come and see. Look at the beauty of God. See all the greatness of God. Bless Him and honor Him. The call is to the whole world. Come. Come. It's not, well here, let me try to give you some evidence so that you can believe that God exists. No, it assumes. Praise Him for His marvelous works. Praise Him for His power. You can see it all around you. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to see. Praise Him. Come, all the world will worship you. All the world will worship. Because all the world knows. Again, it's not a concept of evidence, it's the concept of suppression. I don't want, I like my sin, I'm not letting it go. So there is no God. There is none. They, uh, all the earth will worship and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Selah. Selah. So the global invitation, the global invitation, come and praise. Come and see. Come and know. In fact, he says the very next in the very next verse, "Come and see the works of God." Consider, he's asking, consider the works of God. <laughs> he's not saying, 
Here they all are. He's saying you can see them. You can see it. You can't account for it. You deny it to hold on to your sin. But the call is, come. Look. Be honest. Be honest about what's happening and what's working, what's going on in your life. For He is awesome in His doings uh, toward the sons of men. And He's going to describe one. Now, He's going to begin to focus His attention. He's moving in His attention toward Israel. He's going to call Israel now to come. He's called the world. <clears throat> now he's going to call Israel. But look what he says. He says, consider the, the things that he's done toward the sons of men. And so what does he do? He turned the sea into dry land. So what's he referring? So we got the exodus of the Red Sea. What else? Jordan River, right? Jordan River, Joshua's conquest. As he crosses the Jordan River into the promised land, God dried it up. I'll show you that he's referring to both. When you look, he turned the sea into dry land. I think he's talking about the Red Sea. And they went through the river on foot. When did they do that? The Jordan River, when the Jordan was stopped up. They were talking about the power of God. There, we will rejoice in him. Where's the there? There in the promised land. There in the land that God gave. Who owns a promised land? God owns it. He's the landlord. If he wants to kick somebody out, can he do it? Yep, he's done it. If he wants to bring somebody in, can he do it? Sure, it's his. He owns it. It's his land. It's his place. <clears throat> so he says, he rules by his power for how long? <clears throat> so is there ever a time that God lost it? Oh, you know, I had everything under control. and it was, It's kind of difficult. You've got to keep all those plates spinning. But, uh, you know, things got a little hectic and I lost a couple. Does that ever happen? Oh, you're amazing. Uh, I might just smack my lips now. Mm. So the point, right? God's in control for how long? Forever. That God is in control, that God is moving and God is working. So he rules by his power. He's in control. But look at the second line there in verse 7. His eyes observe the nation. So is he watching? Yeah. He's in control. And he's watching. He sees. Can you hide yourself in the dark? Psalm, uh, what, what psalm is that? I want to say 119, but that's not it. That's a psalm about the Bible. 139. Is it 139? I can't hide from the Lord. Where would I hide? If I make my bed in hell, he's there. If I go to the depths of the sea, he's there. The idea that there's nowhere you can go that God can't see you. That he's watching, that he sees. So do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Do not let, this is a, a, a cry out to God. God don't let the rebellious exalt themselves. Now, <clears throat> God is, is going to move and work in the midst of the world, but the Bible tells us in uh, Peter, uh, was it 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he's what? Long-suffering, desiring what? Nobody perish. So does God give time and opportunity for repentance? That's right. God gives that opportunity because God knows what hell's like. And really, you have to work kind of hard to get there. Nobody gets there for what they don't know. People go there because they do know God and they suppress the truth. They hold to their unrighteousness. Well... 
He goes on, he says, so, verse 8. Oh, bless our God, you peoples. Now he's looking to Israel. How do I know? The pronouns change. Who's the writer? Well, he's a Hebrew, right? Doesn't tell us. It's a chief musician to the chief musician. A psalm. <coughs> writing from Jew. So he's a, a Jewish guy writing this. He says, um, he, he says, Oh, bless our God, you people. So he's talking to the nation. He's gonna, all the pronouns change. You'll see them all. Bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. Who keeps our soul among the living? Who keeps the nation of Israel? You know, one of the greatest, to me, one of the greatest evidences of the truth of God is, is Israel and the nation of Israel. And we, a lot of people may disagree about that, but that's, it, it, for a nation to cease to exist and then come back into existence, pretty amazing. Pretty incredible. Is Israel perfect? No. Are they knuckleheads just like you and me? Sure they are. Do they get a pass? No. But you still see God working in the midst of the nation in, in a kind of an incredible way. The beginnings as he brings them back into the land. As he establishes them. The Bible says one day they'll turn to him. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for their only son. They'll look upon him whom they had pierced. All those things talk about a day when the eyes of that nation may yet be open. <laughs> but at this point, he's saying, look, it's God who preserves us. Who keeps us among the living? He's looking at his brothers. Who keeps us among the living just as we walk and breathe? Who holds our breath in his hand? God does. So it's all, it all goes back to him. And he does not allow our feet to be moved. Now the idea of David is here we are, or the idea of the Psalms, here we are, we're established in the nation, it's God who keeps our feet here. If God says your feet don't go there no more, what happens? They're gone, right? Is that what happened? The nation divides into two parts, north and south. The north are filled with the people from the children of Israel, all twelve tribes who desire to rebel against God. They develop a false religious system. They're taken into captivity by Assyria 150 years before the south. <clears throat> they go into captivity and and through those events they become the Samaritans. The south, those are the members of all 12 tribes who want to follow the Lord. That's where the worship of the Lord is still taking place. Were they perfect? No. They have bad kings? Sure they did. They have good kings? Yep, they had some good kings too. <clears throat> and as we see... The southern, they last 150 years longer. God gives them more time. But where do they go? Captivity to Babylon. So at the moment that they go into captivity of Babylon, you realize that the nation of Israel never has a king again. Ever. Did they come back into the land? Sure, for a little bit with Ezra and Nehemiah. They experienced battles, but they always had somebody over them. Antiochus Epiphanes. The, in fact... They're having such a struggle with Antiochus and some of the other guys that they're battling with that they called this young country. They sent a message to this young country. The young country's name was Rome. And they said, hey, can you guys come help us out? And so Rome came and helped them out and was there the rest of the time. Until the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. And then there was no Israel until 1948. He says, if God keeps our feet here, if God says, no, your feet are gone. 
If God says your feet can come back, what happens? Feet come back. So he's saying we praise God for what he's doing, how he's worked, how he keeps us, how he holds us. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tested us and have refined us as silver is refined. How silver refined? So there's heat involved, right? Yeah, you guys know, was it a couple weeks ago when it was like uh, the, almost the temperature of hell? The, when that was going on here, I, where I came from, that was the temperature every day from June, July, and, and maybe a little hotter. In August, it got muggy on top of being that hot. So I left that. I don't ever want it again. So I, I had to, I, I, I fell to my knees praying, Lord, please, <laughs> take that all away. I guess we'll still have some of those days. But <clears throat> the point is, how is silver refined? By heat. What do you got to do? Turn it up. You think the silver sitting there smelting in the smelter is excited? If it could, if it could respond, do you think it would have anything to say? Like maybe turn this down. What are you doing? This is killing me. It's hot. But what happens in silver? We heat it up, <coughs> smelt it down, scrape off the dross. A little net across the top takes the dross off. Then heat it up, scrape off the dross, heat it up, scrape off the dross. The story is when you can see the reflection of the guy working with it, the silver was refined. When God refines his people in the same way, he wants to see his reflection in the people. He wants to see his face shining in your face. His attitude's coming forth out of your life. So the psalmist is saying, look, you've tested us. You've refined us as silver. You refined us as silver. And certainly there were times in Israel's history where they're on track, right? Boom, all, all uh, cylinders are firing. <coughs> no problems. Everything is good. They've been refined, and God wants to refine us. You brought us into the net. Oh, what does that talk about? That's captivity, right? That's captivity. You, you brought us in the hard times. You refined us as silver. You, you uh, tested us and you brought us into the net. We were trapped. You, you brought us into a place where we've been caught. And you laid affliction on our back. Who laid it? He's calling his nation. Praise God for it. Because the valley of Achor becomes the door of hope. The children of Israel, through the things they suffered, they learned. God uh, uh, is able to move uh, idolatry out of their life through captivity. God is able to refine his people as a result of the things that they go through, the struggles that they have. Somewhere, we bought the idea that conflict is bad. I see it all the time in people's marriages. They, They think conflict is bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, if you're going to be married, you're going to have conflict. He doesn't say this is bad. He doesn't say, uh, really, you shouldn't get married because you're going to have conflict. No, he just, he's just making a point. When you're married, there will be conflict. What is important about conflict? Conflict is how you grow. What do you do when you go to a weight room? You have conflict. If you don't have conflict, nothing happens. Yeah, you can go to the weight room and do what I do and look like this. If that's your goal, you you won't sweat at all. 
It'll be really easy and there'll be no conflict in your life. No conflict, no growth. But you want to uh, be in shape and be healthy, then you've got to have conflict. You've got to run, not just watch somebody run on TV. You've got to lift weights, not just watch somebody lift weights. Conflict is what establishes growth in our life. Conflict is what establishes growth in our marriage. Conflict is what establishes growth in the church. Probably one of the biggest problems in the church today is we have all segregated by sect. Once upon a time, (coughs) the church was Catholic. Don't misunderstand me. By Catholic, I mean universal. There was one church. And when a problem arose in the church, they had something called a church council. And so the church would come together, leaders of the church from all over the world, and they would sit around a round table and they would argue it out. The concept is good. Because conflict brought growth. Doctrine grew out of those meetings and was established within the church as a whole. But then, men got corrupt, right? That happens, what does power do? Power corrupts. So we see men get corrupt, they're starting to kill each other, people divide in the sex, and now we have this division of churches all over the place. And <coughs> each one of those churches, I think, has a blessing or a nugget from God that really is able to give them uh, a, 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 a way to serve. But because they stay segregated, then it doesn't grow. That gifting just stays that gifting. But if you had people that were of, of a Pentecostal mindset and um, want to see the moving and power of the Holy Spirit, and you had people who were super grounded in the Word of God uh, and <clears throat> were more stringent in, in their view of the Holy Spirit. And then over here you had people who had uh, a view maybe Calvinistic. And over there you had people who had a view of Armenian. And if they didn't segregate and they were all in one church and they were forced in that one church to get along, they would learn and begin to understand all those other views and they would begin to grow and they would begin to develop and things would get straightened out that were out of whack in one person's view and things would begin to get straightened out that were out of whack in another guy's view and the church would be strong because it had conflict. Not conflict that it didn't resolve, conflict that it worked its way through. But we don't have that today. We stay in our little niche where we're comfortable because we the church let's say in the u.s we don't like conflict we don't like oh it's uncomfortable they yelled you ever seen jewish people talk i was on a bus one time on a tour in in israel and the i would have swore that the the driver and the tour guide were about to sock each other they're, and they're talking in, in Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. I can't understand them at all. But they were blah, 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 just going, just moving their hands and all this stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden it was over and they sat down and we kept going. And it's like, you guys okay? Yeah, we're just discussing which way he should go to the next place. Look, 
we have to learn not to be afraid of conflict. Conflict develops growth. If my belief system is challenged, is that bad? It's not bad if my, if my belief system is challenged, then it's going to force me to grow, isn't it? going to force me to develop my belief system. Either I'm going to say, you know what? I disagree with that. Here's why. And we, by going over the scripture together and working our way through, we're both better for it, aren't we? Conflict's not bad. He says, you, you laid the affliction on our back. You brought conflict. You have caused men to ride over our heads. Man, we've been plowed over. We did, we, we did that, you know, Red Rover, Red Rover, send somebody over, and they've come over and just buried us. Conflict's good. A little defeat. You learn more in defeat than you ever learn in victory. On the years I coached, about 10 years, I think I had an <coughs> opportunity to learn a lot from defeat. But eventually, God brought us to the place where we got to enjoy victory. The point is, we, we learn from the defeat. We learn from the defeat. If all you do is, is slaughter everybody all the time, what have you learned? Oh, you don't learn nothing. And then all of a sudden, you get tested, what happens? Oh, something bad happened. Oh, we, we panic. We lose. But it showed us where our weakness is, and now we're able to grow. It's important. It's important for the church. It was important for Israel. We went through the fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. So we went through the fire, and we went through the water. We went through the hot times, and we went through the times we felt like we were going to drown, the wave pounding us. <clears throat> but through it all, you enriched us. Through it all, you made us better. You helped us grow. You helped us understand the things that we need to understand. You brought us out to rich fulfillment. Now, he's, so that's the call to the nation. He's calling his nation. He called the world, come see God. Calls us <coughs> the nation. Look, don't panic over conflict. Come see the works of God. Praise him. He's doing, he's, he's building us. Into what we need to be. And then in verse 13, look at all the pronouns. They change again. Now it becomes I. I will, I will, I will. It was are, they, I will, I will, I will. Here he goes, verse 13. I will go into the house with burnt offerings. What's he saying? I, making a choice of my, my will to offer freely of my own design burnt offering. A burnt offering was a consecration to the Lord. That I am holy yours. That's what he's saying. I am holy yours. The picture of the burnt offering was I'm given all of me. Not my right arm and my left leg, not my Sundays, but seven days a week. I'm giving all. You and me, till the wheels fall off. I will go to your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, <laughs> which my lips have uttered and my mouth have spoken when I was in trouble. The vow, what's the vow? Come on, we've all done it. Lord, if you get me out of this, I will. Isn't that what he's talking about? I will pay my vows that I uttered with my mouth when I was in trouble. You've been there, right? God, if you do this, I'll do that. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my vows. I'm going to keep my promises to God. And I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with a sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. He's going to give all these things because it was an effort to praise God, to, to glorify him. It was an opportunity to come together in this incredible barbecue. You guys ever been at a killer pit barbecue? Smell how good that smells? 
The idea of the burnt offering and the burnt sacrifice was to share a meal with God, communion, communion with Him, spending time with God, spending time in His presence. Come and hear all you who fear God. Everyone, come and see. And I will declare that he, what He has done for my soul, my whole being. For I cried to Him with my mouth, and He was extolled or praised with my tongue. I cried to Him, I praised Him, I lifted Him up. Look at verse 18. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The point of if I regard iniquity in my heart is if I treasure my sin. So currently in, in the world today, people have a problem with this. So they should get over it. Uh, Leviticus 18 is very clear. Romans chapter 1 is very clear. I, 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 there's lots of sins I don't like that I wish God would just cut us loose and let us do, but he doesn't. He says this is sin. This lifestyle sin, sexual immorality sin bestiality, sin, uh, Leviticus 18 lays them all out. Every one of them. It says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now usually when you talk about that, somebody says, yeah, but it also says not to eat shellfish. I don't know how they know this stuff. They must listen to a podcast somewhere. <laughs> the, the, the shellfish or the dietary restrictions was the veil that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. And in Colossians and in Ephesians, the Bible tells that Jesus Christ, by the veil of his flesh, tore down the separation between making both one. And so he did away with that ceremonial law. It's not the same thing as the law that God calls out, this is sin. It's sin. If you treasure your sin, God won't hear you. I don't care what it is. That's just an easy example right now, because people are dancing in the street, treasuring their sin, saying, hey, right on, I get to have my sin. Look, it don't matter what the state says, don't matter what the president says, don't matter what the Supreme Court says, it matters what God says, and God says, if you regard iniquity, if you treasure your sin, he don't hear you. That's the problem with it. It's not worse. It's not worse than any other sin. In fact, if you are regarding your sin, whatever that might be, you're treasuring your sin <coughs> in your life, the Bible says God doesn't hear you. What's necessary? Repent. Repentance. To, to uh, uh, confess what it is Christ has called us to, to confess, to say the same thing he does. Lord, this is a sin. I, I want this thing. I want this, but I want you to take it away because I believe you more than I believe my feelings. But if I do that, then, then I may never be with anyone. I may never experience a family. You're right. You may never. Does everybody got a guarantee to have a family? Does everybody have a guarantee to have children? Does everybody have a guarantee to have what everybody else has somewhere in our life? Did somebody promise us that everything would be equal? Do, are, are some babies born sick? Do some children only live a couple years? Man, what's the deal? That's life, man. Life is hard and, and unfair. It doesn't make God a liar. <coughs> 
Sometimes the choices that we make to follow God cost us something. That's why he said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Don't treasure your sin. Repent from your sin and enjoy your walk with the Lord. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy for me. God is willing. God is willing to move, to save, to be merciful, to be compassionate. But you don't get to skip repentance. You don't get to you get to come a sinner, but you don't get to come treasuring your sin. You gotta let it go. I gotta let mine go. You gotta let your go. Everybody comes the same way. Through repentance, experiencing what God has for us. Seven more verses in Psalm sixty seven. To the chief musician, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. It's a repeat of Numbers uh, chapter 6 talking about the, the uh, b- 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 benediction. So the benediction, he's, he begins with the benediction, moving himself into a psalm. That you may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. So God be merciful and bless us and cause your face, your countenance, your, your, that you're looking toward us. That you're not turned your back toward us. The, the idea is we're looking toward you. And, and we want you to look toward us. And then the purpose, why does he want these things? To let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The idea is that they'll see through us and they'll praise you for what you're doing in our life. In verse 4 he says, Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. What did he say? He's going to judge them how? Righteously, right? That means right judgment. Right? Do we know anything about God's judgment? Does God tell us his judgment? Did God repent of the Old Testament? So did God's law change? No, his law has not changed. I told you the ceremonial law, the things that separated Jew from Gentile, has been done away with in Christ. But sexual immorality wasn't what separated Jew from Gentile. The ceremonial law, the dietary law, the circumcision, those things were given to Israel and those things were fulfilled in Christ so that the wall of separation could be removed and the two peoples could be made one. But the other parts, he says, hey, God's going to judge righteously. Righteously. It's his righteousness. Let the, uh, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth will yield her increase, God. Our own God shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. What is it that, that brings about the struggle we have in earth today? Sin. Sin brought it. All of it. Every struggle, all the pain, all the, all the hurt, all the wrong man does to man. It's all sin. The Bible tells us that one day God's going to put it away. He's going to judge it all. He's going to cleanse it all. He's going to make it right. But the Bible says, well, why doesn't he do it now? Hurry up and do it. Because when God does that, time's up. You know anybody who's not saved? If God does that and time's up, 
You know, a, a man doesn't go to heaven because he's good. Nobody's good. A man doesn't go to heaven because he's got a good heart or a good spirit. A man goes to heaven because he stops suppressing the truth, he repents of his sin, and he calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's saved. All of us the same way. (coughs) When that day comes, time's up. And like we said, Peter wrote, God's not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. God's not lazy, God's not unwilling. God is long-suffering. He wants everyone who's going to come to come. Now whose job is it to get them to come? God calls. But who does he send? Who's the hands and feet? Who's the mouth? Who's the herald? Who's the preacher? How shall they know unless someone goes? And how shall they go unless someone sends him? The idea is that each and every one of us is called to herald to do what the psalmist is talking about. Praise Him. Glorify Him. Allow the, the relationship you have with God to be seen in your life so that all the peoples of the nations will join, will come along, will praise Him as a result. Way back in the Psalms, same thing Jesus told us all in Matthew 28. Go. Go, shine the light. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't bury it in a bush. Let it shine. Why? For people to see. So they'll come. So they'll come and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word. Work our way through the Psalms, Lord. So many things for us to learn, for us to grasp, for us to understand. God, I pray that you would just uh, continue to guide us, continue to open our eyes, continue to show us the things that you're, you're wanting us to grasp and understand. Continue to establish your truth in our life, God, so that we can bless you and honor you and god that we would be busy doing the things you're asking us to do the the reason the psalmist is calling for praise and glory and honor is so that we might be a witness to the nations for them it was the nation of israel to the goyim the gentile for us it's the believer for the unbeliever the believer for the unbeliever the question The issue is not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of sin. I love my sin. I don't want out of my... I don't want to let go of my sin. I enjoy the concept of of being my own God. My own... uh, I'm in control of my own life. And denying the reality of God Almighty. Lord, we pray that you would help each of us, Lord, to take our God's story. How you've moved and worked (laughs) in our lives to the world that they might see and hear and know that you are God and that we may in whatever way led by your Holy Spirit be able to lead men everywhere to repentance to a knowledge of the truth for God that's what you grant repentance and a knowledge of the truth for all wisdom and knowledge are found 
in Christ Jesus. So as we come to you, as we bring you into our life, you'll guide, you'll lead, you'll open, you'll direct. Lord, I pray you help us to be the church you're asking us to be. Making a difference in this world. Looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not being lazy. There are things you have called us to do. So God, refine us as silver, purify us, lay affliction on our back, whatever's necessary, that we wouldn't fear the conflict, Lord, but we would know you're calling us to grow, to love you, and to express that love to anyone who will hear. And God, may you be glorified and magnified as we, your church, respond. In Jesus' name, amen.